Hello, I'm Nanaba Duncan, and this is Media Girlfriends. I am back in your feed. Long time no see. How are you? What are you doing? What are you up to? Well, I am... I'm all right. I'm doing well. It's kind of a smoky day in Ottawa because we've got some wildfires burning nearby. So it's not the nicest day, but I'm cozy in a studio at my school where I work. And I'm excited to be bringing you a new episode. I have a very special guest and I'm going to give you a clue and you have two seconds to guess. Do you have a friend who is just quietly excellent? That is my friend, Connie Walker. She won a Pulitzer. <laughs> it's so I can't even say it. She won a Pulitzer and a Peabody in the same week for her podcast, Stolen, Surviving St. Michael's. It's just, it's just amazing. So I know Connie from when we both used to work at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC. She's an investigative reporter. She produces and hosts that podcast, Stolen. And she also created Missing and Murdered for CBC. Connie is Cree from Okanese First Nation. And her work has covered issues like missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. And the impacts of intergenerational trauma from residential schools. Usually in her podcast, Connie is investigating someone else's story, but surviving St. Michael's starts close to home. In the 1970s, my dad was a police officer in rural Saskatchewan. One night, while out on patrol, he saw a car swerving on the road and he pulled it over. When he walked up to the window, he recognized the man behind the wheel. As being one of the priests that... And he said one of the priests had abused him in residential school. And he ended up taking him out of the vehicle and, and beating the shit out of him. Connie's dad went to St. Michael's Residential School in Saskatchewan, and so did her aunts, her uncles, her grandparents. Before the podcast, it wasn't something she and her family talked about. But after she heard this story... Connie had to investigate her family history and her own ties to the trauma of residential schools. Stolen Surviving St. Michael's became the first podcast to win a Pulitzer and a Peabody in the same year. And honestly, I understand the idea that we don't need awards to affirm us. But this one to me has so much meaning because it is an award for work that is focused on a personal perspective and it is journalistic, it is rigorous, and it is well-respected. And that means so much to me. I can tell that it means so much to Connie too because she was really proud. One of the images that she kept sharing on her socials was this photo of Times Square with a huge promo for the podcast on a billboard. And the image on that promo is of her dad as a child smiling. And that photo is where we started our conversation. So I don't know if you know this, but you won a Pulitzer and you won a Peabody. <laughs> I know, it's wild. It is wild. Um, what was the first feeling you had? I mean, disbelief, honestly, like kind of shock and disbelief. I mean, I still feel like I'm in disbelief and not because I don't think our podcast was great and that like, you know, I'm not super proud of the work that we did, but I don't know. Somehow it it feels like in Canada, it just never felt within the realm of possibility. Like, I I don't know. I never, I never dreamt of winning a Pulitzer. 
Um, Did you dream of winning other awards? No, no. You're just not that kind of a person to be like, and I want that one over there. You know, maybe when I was a kid watching the Oscars, you think about, oh, what would it be like to like accept uh, an Oscar, like be on stage giving speech. And if I think about it now, I'm like, actually, it would be so uncomfortable. I'd be so nervous. I'd almost rather not win one. (laughs) (laughs) I have a feeling that if you won the, yeah, exactly. If you won the Oscar, I have a feeling that you'd muddle through it. I think you'd figure it out. (laughs) I think you'd figure it out. So uh, can I ask, like, after you won, what were your group chats saying? (laughs) Oh, my God. I feel so bad, honestly. Like, it's so incredible. But, like, when when it happens, like, I feel like I heard from every single person I've ever known in my life. (laughs) In a really good way. You know, it's amazing. It's so amazing. Like, the people who reach out to you to say congratulations and to, like send well wishes it's so incredible like you're just like riding this high for like days Uh, but then I'm like it's also so overwhelming there's still many messages and things that I have not yet had a chance to respond to and like I actually did a screen recording of Twitter because I was like I just cannot keep up and it was like four minutes long (laughs) all the all the mentions or like notifications that I was like oh my god I missed this and this and Twitter I feel like loses them so I was like trying to record them so that I would have like a record and be able to respond and then Mm -hmm. I've kind of just thrown up my hands I'm like I think I did a generic thank you everyone for all the messages (laughs) but there's so many people that I want to get back to you and that sent the the nicest messages it's just so, it's mm-hmm. so great. It, it reminded me actually of like when I left CBC, like I, a lot of people reached out when I left CBC and it was such a reminder of like, there were obviously really challenging things about working at CBC and like, um, I, you know, at the time I, I really wished that I, I didn't have to leave or I didn't feel like I had to leave. I was disappointed about it. But then when I left, I was really reminded of like, oh my God, I've been so lucky to work here because there's so many great people who work at CBC. Like there's so many amazing people who work there. Oh, I feel the same way. It's so true. Beautiful, wonderful, great journalists there. I know it's, yeah. And so just like that reminder of like, I've been so lucky to work with like incredible people. Yeah. Every stage in my career and like it has been, been because of them and their support and like the that in spite of like all of the challenges that everybody there faces like there have been ways to like find friends and community and and amazing colleagues and mm-hmm. and that that's kind of like what I was reminded about winning those awards it was like oh my god I've been so lucky there's so many great people <laughs> um when you won I saw that you shared that picture of your dad's face at in Times Square a lot. And it, this particular image, it seemed to mean a lot to you. What did it mean? You know, it was such, it was such an overwhelming time, I would say, because obviously like there, these are, this is huge news to, to win a Pulitzer on Monday and then a Peabody on Tuesday. Like you just, it's just too much. You can't even process it. Right. You're just like, Oh my God, it's really intense. And, and you know, you're, <laughs> talking to people and you're, you know, I was mostly just right away concerned about my family and like, how is everyone doing? How is everyone feeling? It's really exciting and overwhelming. Um, but then when, when someone sent that picture of my dad, um, on the billboard in New York city, like 
I had the emotional reaction that I hadn't had yet, which is just that I just immediately oh. started crying. I was just like, oh. I just like, I just stopped. I couldn't, I like, I just, it just sprang forward and I just felt so, I, I was by myself in Seattle when all this happened. I had just happened to like take a trip to Seattle mm -hmm. um, and I was by myself. So I was just in my hotel room and I saw it and, and I just, yeah, I just started crying because it was just like the picture of his sweet face and this little boy and on a billboard in New York City mm -hmm. um, and it just kind of really you know crystallized what this has all been about in mm -hmm. so many ways and like yeah just I you know just the, the because everything else was so heightened I just had this really I think heightened response to it it sounds like you were crying like for your dad for the little boy mm -hmm. am I right or do you think you were crying for something else no yeah definitely my dad and myself and my family and like you know this this is even like the making of the podcast I definitely I felt compelled to do it I, I heard that story about my dad and I was like mm -hmm. I can't ignore it. I have to, can't go around it. I'm not going to like avoid this. Like I need to kind of go through it. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to shine the biggest spotlight I can possibly shine on this. My family's story, like my father's that life thought? and my you, life. Like you had that thought yeah. of, I'm going to go all in like big. Yeah. Yeah, mm. for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's what it, or I, I wouldn't say it was the immediate thought. I think it was like, after it was like, is this, is this something I want to do? I'm not sure. Is this something that's even possible to do? Like, would my family be okay with it? Mm -hmm. You know, and then having the first conversation with my brother and being like, when did he tell you that story? And like, how did it come about? And what do you think? And I think I might want to do a story about it. And he's, and everyone being so supportive. And then having people support, but still being myself, like, is this something I want to do? How much of this do I want to do? And then... And then also feeling like the feeling of like, is this even a story? Like I'm interested oh. in this. This is my family. I'm really into it. I'm really invested, but like, that is you know, such a is journalist thing though, right? Like we, <laughs> we have this story. So many people who have like amazing stories will come to, you know, another person and be like, is this a story? And the answer is always, or not always, but often the answer is like, yes, it's a story. Like, why wouldn't it be? It's interesting that yeah. you kind of thought that it wasn't. I just, I didn't know. Like I, I had done these interviews with my aunts and uncles, every one of them. I was just like sitting on the edge of my seat, wanting to know more and wanting to ask more because we'd never had these conversations before in my family. Like I didn't know about any of their residential school experiences. I didn't know really. It's like you never interview your family. Like I never interview your family. You're just hanging out. Yeah. Sometimes they'll yeah. share things, but I feel like having a microphone and putting on the cloak of journalist mm -hmm. there to ask questions just unlocked like so much and so fun. So I was like just soaking this all up and they were intense conversations but I have this memory of just feeling lighter every time and just feeling so grateful every time and wanting mm. to know more and wanting to do the next and do the next and do the next. But then, but then when, when, you know, you're talking with your producers and I work with like most of the people I work with are Americans who, you know, don't know a lot of Canadian history. Um, maybe before this didn't, you know, before listening to our, our other podcast, didn't understand, you know, residential schools, and having the question like are is this engaging for you at all <laughs> like you know like i feel like 
that was a really valid thing. And, and yeah, and absolutely they, you know, they were so supportive, but it is, it is this thing of little decisions that then lead to like, okay, we're doing this, we're doing this and we are going to shine the biggest spotlight we can. And we are going to try to find as much out as we can. And I think that through that, it was like a months long experience. And then it also felt like it's taken months to even process what all that was, you know, all of the truths that we were able to uncover, but then also just the, the grappling of with my own story within my dad's story and within the story of this one school. What exactly did you grapple with? Um, well, I think honestly, I grappled, I feel like I grappled with every part of it. Um, at every point, <laughs> um, in every conversation and, and every edit, um, mm. because, um, for lots of reasons, like, like, I guess the central question was really like, is this my story to tell? Like, you know, my dad passed away like over 10 years ago now, and we never talked about any of this. And so I understood intellectually, I guess, that like, as, as his daughter, I would have been impacted by his experience in residential school. But I think what I was searching for was like, understanding that emotionally, like, what does that Mm -hmm. really mean? Like, what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for my childhood and my role as a daughter, but also as my role, my role as a parent now? Um, and really wanting to understand like my dad's story. It felt like a way to like understanding my dad's story felt like a way of understanding this world that I grew up in because my dad was a residential school survivor, but my grandparents, all of my grandparents were as well. And, you know, as someone who's done so much reporting on indigenous stories, um, that are obviously all connected to this, Mm-hmm. Like feeling like I hadn't done the work to connect the dots in my own life felt like something I wanted to do. But I I definitely had that feeling of like, would my dad be okay with this? What like what would he think about it? And what answer did you come to? Well, early on in the process, after I had interviewed um some of my aunts and uncles, I realized I wanted to talk to someone outside of my family who was also at St. Michael's and I spoke to Eugene Arcan, who's a survivor who was on the advisory survivors advisory committee for the truth and reconciliation commission. And in that interview, like, um, I mean, it was just so, I, I just have this image of like, hands like slapping together thinking of that interview. Cause I really just felt like it was like, bam, he like just kind of came at me with like all of this truth about like, he had processed his experience at residential school, maybe because he talked about it so much in just this way that was just like, it was so powerful and so uh, impactful because it wasn't like he was talking about, um, like it was immediately about my dad and it was immediately about like what he would have gone through. And Eugene also in that same conversation, um, I feel like was warning me like, you know, you should be careful. I felt it. I felt it. It really felt like he was really like he said, don't play with this. And I really felt that. If it's a child love, like what you're doing and other children, I have no issue with moving it forward. Just be careful with it. Be careful with it. Don't play with it. 
I like yeah. anyone, honestly, I would have understood if someone in that moment went, you know what? Let me take a step back. I don't I know did, about yeah. this. You did an actual step yeah. back? Yeah. I mean, I absolutely like, I mean, in the, in the interview itself, I was like crying uh, mm-hmm. on a Starbucks patio <laughs> in a parking <laughs> lot. Um, and then, and then the interview, then he, he left, he had to go. And then I, I called Ellen, who's a producer on our show um, from the car and I was still crying and I was like, you know, talking to her about what he had said and processing it. And I was like, I just need to think about this, you know? And I, I, I went home to my mom's that weekend and she was like, maybe you shouldn't do this. Like, maybe this is not mm. something you should do. And it was funny. Cause it was like almost hearing that, like before that I was like, I don't know what to do. I have no idea. And then her saying that sharpened it for me to be like, I don't want to not do it. Like I, I, mm. I'm like, I feel like this is something that's important to me. And then I talked to my brother, Harry, um, about it as well. I, 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 I'm so lucky to have such a supportive family. Like, and I know people say that, but I really have such an amazing supportive family. And he was like, you know, um, this is your story. Like, this is mm-hmm. you, this is your life mm-hmm. as well. And I, and always in the back of my mind, like in thinking about my dad's story, I thought about my own childhood and what I experienced as a child in his community and and the abuse that I went through and how I know how that's shaped my whole life and impacted my whole life. Mm -hmm. And, and I thought about that and I, and at that point I didn't know if I was going to talk about it in the podcast yet, or if I was going to go there, but I knew that I knew I obviously I had that experience and I connected the dot and understood how that was also my motivation. Mm. for wanting to do this that it was Mm. like actually like it was wanting to understand what I went through as well and how it was connected to his experience but also my other family's experience at this school and and that's when I decided that I was like this is important for me Mm -hmm. do you ever feel like did you ever have a feeling that you needed to tell your story? I mean, I think I have felt that for sure. Like it definitely felt like St. Michael's surviving St. Michael's, um, has been something I've been building towards, Mm -hmm. um, you know, since I started my career in journalism really. And like, I've, I've done different iterations of like telling my own story, like, uh, for CBC News Sunday, or actually for Outfront, actually it was my very first one of my very first experiences in audio. Ooh, Outfront! I did an Outfront. Long time. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I did an Outfront so many years ago. I don't even remember what it was about, but I remember it was like it was a personal story. And then I did a a short uh, mini doc for CBC News Sunday about going home back to my community mm-hmm. and also about leaving home. Um, and then I've included parts of my story in in the podcasts that that I've told, and I think that. For me, it's always been about this idea of like wanting to see myself in mm-hmm. the stories that we're mm-hmm. doing. Like, and, and the fact that there has been very little representation of Indigenous people, but also like uh, what it has existed has been problematic. And like mm-hmm. this St. Michael's felt like, like all of these things were coming together at the right time for me to take on a story like this. One that like I, I was ready to um and I wanted to and two that I was like on a show where I had 
you know, editorial control and, and what, as the managing editor and host of the show that I could decide and that I was working really closely with my team and relied on them so much, obviously, but like I had the agency to tell it the way that I wanted to tell it. I didn't have, you know, and I, and I talked about this with Lydia just when, when the Pulitzer news came out, but Lydia Polgreen was our managing mm -hmm. director at Gimlet at the time. And it was my first time having, uh, like a person of color, um, as a boss who like, it was just incredible. I was like, she just got it right away and, yeah. and was like so immediately supportive. And like, I have spent so much of my career having the opposite of experience where you're like, let me prove it to you. Let me show yes. it to you. Let me, yes. let me like, yes. let me jump through this hoop and that hoop and the other hoop. And then another to, hoop. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then have it be like great and outstanding. And then like that be the kind of, uh, insurance you need to get to get yes. the next thing you know yeah. and with Can Lydia we talk about really... that for a second sure yeah Lydia is she gets <laughs> it she's she really is amazing I've watched her career from afar and um, I'm not surprised to hear what you said about her getting it um, but when it comes to agency those of us who have followed your your story your career may already know this story about um, a moment where you were pitching a story and someone put their hand up and said this isn't another poor Indian story is it? And mm. um, I don't know if I've ever heard, what was your response in that moment? I, I, I think like it was just the two of us in, in, in my executive producer's office. So I think I just kind of like tried to keep going and like ignore, you know, mm, like what, mm -hmm. it, what it was said and just diminish it in a way and not have it be a big, a big thing. You know, like I felt like that was like just my kind of standard um <laughs> mo for the first like you know 10 years of my career was really like i'm just trying to be quiet over here and fit in and mm. like you know sur survive in this space that is like not at all meant for me mm. or people like me and mm -hmm. i'm just like i just you know I, I really need this job i'm just gonna stay over here and be quiet mm. what is the impact of a statement like that I have my own, like I have a, a few, <laughs> but like, yeah. I, I think we need to talk about it sometimes about what those statements do to people and how it makes yeah. them continue their, their, or how it makes them decide how to act afterwards. Like for you, you're saying, yeah. I'm just, I'm just trying to get through here. <laughs> I'm, I'm just being quiet. I mean, I like it wasn't the kind of thing where I was like, "Oh my God, I'm going to HR and I'm making a complaint." Like no, that was just I, never yeah, within the realm of, of possibility. But I think it was definitely like a motivator for me in terms, of, like it made me so angry and pissed off. Mm. And I feel like that's something that is often a driver for my motivation. It's like feeling <laughs> like, angry. I'm gonna and do upset this about fucking something. story. I'm, like, I'm gonna turn this into something. Yeah, I did, and actually, and then I pitched it. Um, uh -huh. I pitched that same story um, at Imaginative that fall because uh, they had this documentary pitch contest at the mm -hmm. Imaginative Film Festival, and I won. I, I pitched it, and I won. Um, I never made the doc, but I, I remember, like, trying to use it as, as motivation, mm -hmm. um, really. Like, I don't know. Like, what does it do? Like, I, it's, it's hard to, like, I think parcel out a single experience as having, like, a particular effect it's like what does it what does it do to grow up in a racist society that undervalues indigenous women from the time you're born until like mm -hmm. present day like 
like it's not a single experience there's no. been a million experiences mm-hmm. well for our purposes i mean we're obviously talking about journalism so I'm, i've been thinking about the newsroom and you know i'm a professor now so i'm thinking about how we can make newsrooms uh better for people uh like us and so um i would say that that agency piece is important and it is nice when you get a a leader who just gets it right away they don't have to be a person of color like it's also great when you have a person yeah. who who doesn't share your um identity who just who just kind of gets it um let's move on to like the difference between um how your work experience was like at CBC versus uh Gimlet i know that you were doing this work at CBC and as journalists, we go from one place to another for various reasons. I left CBC for my own reasons. Some were good, some were bad. But why did you leave CBC? I mean, I was at CBC for almost 20 years. So I feel like, I mean, I it's hard to ha- even have comparative experiences because mm. I, I started at CBC as an intern in 2000. And then I had like so many different jobs in those like 19 plus years at CBC. Some of my friends remember you from Street Sense. Yeah, Street Sense. That was I was an intern first at CBC in Halifax, working on the morning show, and I, I was a terrible intern. Um, and one day I was on you a smoke were break terrible? outside. Oh my god, I was I was a terrible <laughs> intern. And one day I was on a smoke break in the parking lot, sitting on one of those like concrete things that, that like you know that keep the car from like mm-hmm. crashing into a wall. And this woman came up to me and she was like, I've seen you around the building. What are you doing here? And then I explained how I was an intern. And and she said that she was a producer for Street Sense and they were looking for a new host. And would I be interested in auditioning? (laughs) And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. After I finish my smoke, I'll I'll come right in. I'm just (laughs) kidding. But I was like, I said yes. And then and then she like um, sent me a script and I was like so nervous and I memorized it. Anyway, I got the job, and then I became a host. I went from intern to host in, like, three months or four months or something. That's wild. That's wild. So, yeah, it, it was 20 years. Are you trying to say it was time to leave? Like, what is your answer here? Oh, yeah. No, no. I just meant that, you, like, you're saying, like, comparing and contrasting my experience uh... now. Like, it, I feel like where I am at now, it feels like more like the culmination of, like, everything that happened since I was an intern. It was like, you know... Um, and just getting to a point where where I'm in this position now at Gimlet, like it's mm. yeah, it's it feels really different. Good. But the reason I left CBC was um, because I wanted to keep doing podcasts. Like I I had done two seasons of Missing and Murdered, which was um, the podcast that we started at CBC, and I wanted to keep doing that. And there just wasn't possible to do that at CBC at the time Why? in 2018, 2019. You know, I I mean, I, I asked myself that question a lot. I was like, I didn't quite understand why it wasn't possible. I felt like it should have been possible. And it was really kind of frustrating that mm. um, that it wasn't. And I, and I think that, like, obviously, having worked at the CBC for so long, like, it just felt like there's always this struggle between an expression or a messaging of, like, think outside the box and be creative versus, like, what is actually then required, right? Like because of the budgets or because of whatever else. And it seemed like at the time when I was working in news after having done the first two seasons of the podcast, like the focus was still really on TV and like, you know, we really need to like 
keep our TV audience mm. audiences for the national and the fifth estate mm-hmm. and like um, podcasting wasn't seen as as a priority for whatever reason. You mentioned budgets and what it takes to make a podcast. How much goes into an investigative podcast? I think that investigative reporting just generally is is like requires a lot of resources and support. Mm. And that's true for podcasting as well. So I think like um, just keeping that in mind. I mean, I, I wasn't thinking about that when I started my first podcast, though. The first, <laughs> the first podcast I did, I was like, oh, my God, this is an incredible story. Like, and we, there's no way we could tell it in just like one, you know, one story or one episode or one, you know. I was like, this needs to be multiple episodes. We were actually supposed to only do a news story when we went out to do the Alberta Williams story. It was going to be a two-minute news story. Really? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And because at that point we had we had, um, re- you know, been reporting on M- missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls for a little while, like a little while, like, but we had done a few stories. And I remember um, someone saying like, how many more can you do really? You know, like you've done a few now, how many more can you do? I'm like, this is just the beginning. Like, yeah, just like getting what are you started. <laughs> but also you can't say that. And that was happening in my mind. But in the meeting, I was like, yeah, I think that there are like, you know, other opportunities we haven't explored yet. And, you know, anyway, and so we have this love like to hear kind you of, do that. oh my gosh, but that's my whole career. I feel like, you know, it's like, like you like quietly being like putting all the anger underneath and going, well, you know, I think there's that is, but that's wild, Connie. What do you mean? Didn't you do that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not wild. It's like, it's like the like. <sighs> like the thing that we are all doing all the time, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, hopefully that is changing. Are you seeing changes? Like, I mean, I know that we can, we can say between now and five years ago, there are a lot of, a lot more stories about uh, residential school survivors um, and people's experiences. But is, what is the nuance to the changes that you've seen? The diversity of stories is is something that is like an example of the change, right? That it's like kind of stories that better showcase like the diversity that exists in our communities in terms of like, you know, not just Indigenous, but mm-hmm. like being First Nations, Inuit or Métis, or being like First Nations from uh, the East Coast versus like Cree or, you know... Um, but also then the diversity of experiences. And Duncan McEwer, I know, talks about your your new colleague, Duncan. Yes, Duncan um, McHugh. He's a journalist and joining me as a professor at Carleton University. So lucky. You guys, this we looks are. great. I'm so excited for uh, you guys. This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he talked a lot about like how, I can't remember what his three things were, were like, drumming, dancing, and... There was one other thing. Oh, yes. Drumming, dancing, drinking, or dead. Yeah. Yeah. And then and, there's a and... W, which is warrior. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Four WD so is been... what he calls it. I oh, memorized that because yeah. I teach everybody now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I feel like there, there's like there's room for other experiences beyond yeah. that in a way that there really wasn't before. Mm-hmm. And like that changed. Like that's that has been in the last ten years. Like I remember, or maybe eleven years. Um, like Eighth Fire was kind of the the first time I was like, oh my god, like 
our stories and our voices on primetime television in mm-hmm. 2012. It really like, I, I and what was, was like, eighth fire? It was the TV documentary series I worked on for CBC. It was like a four part documentary series meant to be all about reconciliation. Um, but really the indigenous perspective. And so, um, I remember like the first episode going to air and like sitting on my couch and like feeling so emotional and wishing that my, my grandma had been alive to see this. Cause there were other native people on TV with accents, like, mm. you know, on the screen and given this time and resources. And now it's like, yeah, of course. Like, yeah. yeah you know, it's like, it's a given in, in a way that it just wasn't, you know, it just felt like an impossibility, I think for a long time. But I think that the other part of it is like, um, you know, journalism is important obviously, but, but you know, a show like reservation dogs for example mm-hmm. like just feeling like it's obviously written by native people for us Aho! young warrior <laughs> man i'm in the bathroom some things are sacred oh yeah you're right this is a very sacred place the most sacred when i saw it i was like we can do that because i feel like my podcast <laughs> is like you know it really is like I wanted to be for for other people like me and for other indigenous people but a lot of it is for the non-indigenous audience you know it's meant to be an education it's meant to be like an uh a place for understanding and reservation talks just felt like they're like we're not even gonna worry about other people we're just like focused on on us and ourselves and like and I just yeah I feel like my mind is blown by that I just love it it seems delicious, actually. Like, when I think right now of the possibility of working with, for example, an all-black team, I just, like, what? I just, I've never, I've never had that. Like, I don't know what that's like. And I yeah. just can't imagine what it would be like. It makes me think of, I don't know if you know of uh, this show, it's called The Black Lady Sketch Show. And there's a yeah. seat, yeah, and one of them, one of the famous ones that goes around is like where they're in a court scene and they notice that everybody who is part of the court is a black woman and everyone's like, oh my God, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Everyone's just so super yeah. excited and, and like right now that's a fantasy. <laughs> so to yeah. imagine that somebody has like been able to, and maybe everyone of Reservation Dogs was not um, all indigenous people, but as you say, it was from the an indigenous perspective. And no, it made... is. They have an all native writing. It's room, all I'm okay. It sure. is all of them. Okay, yeah. I, I wasn't quite. They have sure. an all native writing room. They have like uh, indigenous directors. Obviously, the actors. Like they're so like I, I really feel like they're living the dream over there in Oklahoma. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Hey, you're close to the dream, aren't you? You're kind of close. I mean, I, I, I'm, I feel like, yeah, I guess it's like, what, what is, I don't even know what, what is my the dream, dream is. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really know. I, I don't, I've never had like a goal or like, uh, something I'm working towards really. Mm-hmm. Like it's not. Yeah. So um, I think that's a lie. I'm, Can I just stop you there? I think that's a lie. Yeah. Because I do think you have a goal, maybe not a goal to win or, you know, I'm putting that in quotes, but like yeah. you have talked about doing this story and there was a compulsion. You use that word a lot. Yeah. Like you needed to do the story, it feels like. And that feels like a goal. Yeah. I mean, I feel like like even the word compulsion though feels like it's more of an instinct. Do you know what I mean? Uh, okay. Like it's more okay. of like a uh like I'm I really just I feel like I follow that voice in my in my in my head or in my mind or my body. 
And that's the the thing. I don't feel like I have a sense of like, oh, it's going to go here. or I'm striving towards X, Y, or Z with it. Mm-hmm. It's more about like, this is something that has like grabbed me right now and, and has a hold on me. And I need to like see where it goes kind of a mm. thing. And I think particularly with St. Michael's, like, because it happened at a time in my life when, you know, I, I had been learning about trauma and PTSD for the last few years and learning about therapies mm. for PTSD and trauma and exposure therapy specifically being like one of the most effective ways to to heal from PTSD like the podcast for me also felt like that I was like Mm. it was so painful initially it was so upsetting it was just so difficult that I was like really trying to like avoid it and push it away and Mm. then it wasn't it wasn't working and then it (laughs) and then it was like here's this is what I need to do like I need to like go there I need to basically go there and I think that that when I say it's not just about agency, it's about feeling like you're you're safe enough to do that. Like, mm. I, you know, that we have this trust within the team that we've built, that we can take this on and that we can, I can be vulnerable um, with them in ways that I haven't been in, in work settings before. Like um, that to me is, is what really was like the culmination of all of these things that happened mm. for surviving St. Michael's. Mm. Yeah. So as you were reporting this story, you're traveling, you're traveling with your partner and your 10 year old. What did you tell your child about this story and what you were doing? I, I'm trying to think back to that time. I mean, obviously like, I, I, I think that in general we've been pretty transparent with them. I think that like, you know, in, in vague terms, at least, you know, we're, we're here to learn more about Musham Howard and his experience at residential school. And, and they have been like, you know, they've been learning about residential schools in a way that I never did mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Um, and I remember, and I hope, um, like at one point we were on the reporting trip and they woke up and they had had a nightmare that they had been sent to a residential school with their cousins and um and and they were so upset and I was like it's okay like you know everything's all right and and that they had like this really heartbreaking detail of like how they had their iPad and but the iPad like they were trying not to use it so they could conserve the battery so they could call us like it was such a visceral like you know intense dream and nightmare and and I was you know talking to them and trying to reassure them that like that's never going to happen again it's just never going to happen again and um and I think it's hard it's so hard for kids to make sense of like that it did happen right that any of Mm -hmm. that did happen and that it happened in our family um but I feel like for for you know obviously it's like talking about this this painful experience for sure was a big part of the reporting of this story but the other part of the reporting of this story was like the reconnection that was happening like with my family and my dad's family i was interviewing my my relatives but alongside that like you know we were having family dinners and family barbecues and visiting with this this you know all all their cookums and mushums and Mm -hmm. cousins and like playing on the trampoline and getting to hang out with the kittens and, you know, doing all of these things with their cousins that 
that really and like obviously in the podcast you know picking sweetgrass with their uncle Hal. I think it's the fake kind but I'm not sure. So this one is sweetgrass. It has a distinct like color to it like a green but it's like really like shiny in the yeah. sun. It like shines. Does it smell right away? Um, oh yeah, you can smell it. A little it. bit, yeah. Can but I then there's this it? stuff where... Oh yeah, it smells good too. That can be your sweetgrass that you picked, okay? Yay! It was also this beautiful experience in so many ways. And like, that to me, like, you know, there's so much about the podcast that has felt like um, a gift, really. And that was... That was a, a big part of it was getting to be at home for an extended period and getting to reconnect with that side of my family in ways mm -hmm. that like we've never experienced, you know, um, was so special. And so, mm. you know, they're, they're, it's hard. And it, and people say that it's like, Oh, it's must be so hard to tell your story. I'm like, it's hard to live it. Like living it has been hard, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. um, but the telling of the story part has felt like a really kind of um, good experience, you know, in, in a lot of ways that has led to a healing, but also like a reconnection and, and like an understanding of my dad, like that has really felt like a, a gift. So I feel like that's, that's part of, partly also like, obviously my, my kid is a big motivation for that. I think that's beautiful. I think it's really beautiful. So, uh, can you? What can you share about what you're working on next? Um, we're working on season three of Stolen, so it's a, a brand new story. And I think that like we all felt like we wanted to do something different in that it was like not going to be a personal story, um, not necessarily like a historic in like investigation, um, and in a completely new and different place. Um, so we're mm. actually reporting a story on the Navajo Nation um, mm. in New Mexico and Arizona right now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been, you know, it's been it's been just so eye opening and incredible. And I think I think about I'm like, you know, I, I when I first thought about the podcast, like it was really just, we were going to do this story and I was like, it has to be bigger than this. And then once we were able to connect with people and like help kind of not just tell a compelling story, but really also try to feel like we're showing a different facet of life for indigenous people in every season. And I was really inspired by the wire, you know, and how it felt like that TV show, like examined mm. a different system in every season and like wanting to do that for the podcast. And then, and then I, like, I just, I still have the feeling where I'm like, I just want to keep doing this for as long as I can. Like, I, I, I don't know if that's ever going to go away where I feel like, oh, there's a beautiful cardinal right out the window. It's so nice. Oh, say um, hi for me. Or is it, maybe it's an Oreo. Like, it's quite orange. <laughs> um, anyway, sorry. Um, but, but just having like, um, this feeling of like, is it going to be taken away at some point? Like, is this, uh, like, you know... Oh, is, is there, I get that you know, feeling. Always, it's not, yeah. it's not. Just assume it's not. Because we want to we, we want to see everything that you have. We want to enjoy everything that you do. Um, we love you, Connie. Like, we love you so much. Mm -hmm. I know that you've seen, like, through Twitter and the group chats and everything. We really do. We really support you. 
And actually one Thank last you. question that I have for you is what kind of support do you need from us, from me? What would help you? Oh. Oh. I mean, we should have breakfast. That should be something that happens when you're in that, that, that should really be something. Okay, I will have breakfast with you next week. Wonderful. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll yeah, do that. Yeah. We'll start there. No, I just, I mean, I love what you guys are doing. Obviously, like, the way that you have, like, identified, like, that there is this giant hole in terms of, like, in media of having a space that helps support and uplift um, you know, our voices is so important and, and the work you guys are all doing is just incredible. And I'm so grateful to you all for doing it. And like, I, I anything I can do to help support you guys for sure. Oh my God. I asked you, I just asked you how we could support you. And you're like, I, was. I don't need anything. I need breakfast. That's okay, all, fine. Yes. Okay. I'll, I'll, we'll do breakfast. <laughs> Connie, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I love you, friend. Is it- Oh, thank you very much. Love you too. Yes, I will get breakfast with you, Connie. What a joy to have you on the show. I am so grateful for you. Connie is such a real one. She's a great journalist. She's honest. She's kind. And the fact that she could just, you know, honestly, she did not have to answer my call. She did not have to answer us after winning a Peabody and a Pulitzer. She did not have to answer our call and to hang out with us, but you know, she did. And I appreciate it. And I think what strikes me the most about Connie is her genuine humility. She's just always been like that. So if you enjoyed this conversation and you haven't listened to Stolen Surviving St. Michael's, it is award-winning journalism. It is great work, powerful work. So go listen to it. Support a very deserving media girlfriend. I want to thank Connie's team at Spotify for helping to make this happen. And you heard some clips from Stolen, Surviving St. Michael's, thanks to Spotify, and from Reservation Dogs, courtesy of FX. Thank you to Elena Hudgens-Lyle for producing this episode with me, and to my media girlfriend's co-founders, executive producers, Hannah Sung and Garvia Bailey, who you will hear on the next episode of Media Girlfriends, coming soon. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you later.